good morning again. It's a joy and honor to be here with you all. So thank you for inviting me down here. Been praying for Pastor Glenn as he's been on sabbatical. I hope that uh, he can hear a strong word from the Lord and come back refreshed and rejuvenated uh, and, and able to give and pour into you all as the congregation. So thank you for that gift that you gave him. Do any of you worry? Maybe a silly question. Yeah. <laughs> worry about your kids or grandkids or maybe you're on the other end and worrying about your parents. Maybe your young family worrying about debt and making the next uh, rent or mortgage payment. Maybe you worry about health and end of life. Maybe you work, worry about the political environment uh, we're in. Or natural disasters. Is it warmer or cooler uh, than expected or typical? Is it wetter or drier than needed? As farmers, are the crops doing all right? Sorry if you aren't worrying about these things and I've just added new things. But uh, <laughs> is there job security? What about COVID-19? How long will it um, be around? Or recently about the MCC relief sale, worrying about it coming up to it, worrying about it during, will it go well? And now maybe you can have some peace about it. <laughs> Don't fret about what happened. I know I can think about many things to worry about. The safety of guests and campers. Are the finances of Menno Haven's ministry in order? Are the buildings in good repair? Is the gospel message being presented in a clear, concise way with opportunity for response? Do we have a mature Christ-centered summer staff to lead the youth that come? Are we prepared for the next 10 years of ministry at Menno Haven to be relevant to this world we live in? Is the current year-round ministry team unified in purpose of the Lord's calling for us? Are the latest projects uh, on schedule? Will the finances be there to cover it? Will we go into debt over it? Will staff and volunteers be safe as they work? That doesn't even get into my personal life. <laughs> How are my children doing? Are they healthy? Are they growing in the knowledge and love of Jesus Christ? Are they learning at school? Are they safe when they're out of my care? How is Sheena, my wife, doing? Am I giving her the love and attention she needs and deserves? Am I honoring God with my finances? Am I preparing for retirement and end of life? What if, what if, what if, what if? And I could spend the rest of the morning saying those what ifs. I don't know if you like to read, uh, if anybody's ever read Choose Your Own Adventures. They were pretty popular back in the 1979 to 1999. Anybody read those? Yeah, a few people. Okay. So from 1979 to 1999, the series sold 250 million copies worldwide and was translated into 38 languages. The original classic Choose Your Own Adventure series contained 184 titles authored by 30 different writers. The books are set in locations around the globe, in the outer space, under the sea, and in a number of distinctly imaginative fantasy worlds. Over the course of its publication, Choose Your Own Adventure featured every known literary genre. If you don't know what Choose Your Own Adventure is, you have a book, and you read at the beginning, and then you get to a certain page and it says, do you choose to go left down the hallway, or do you choose to go right down the stairs? And so depending on which way you choose, you say, go to page 25 or go to page 37. And then you flip whichever way you've chosen. And then the next adventure, okay, where does that lead you to? Then the next adventure, do you get on the bus or do you continue walking down the street? Then you choose one of those pages. Eventually, they have different endings to the stories, too. And you always hope it's a good ending. <laughs> I've been challenged that I think too much. I can be thinking about, okay, how many steps down the way would that project or that process or what would that do? It's both a blessing and a curse, I believe, to think of lots of options, to have puzzles to solve. 
Maybe that's why I'm at camp. There's always a puzzle to solve. (laughs) But the consuming nature of it could captivate us to the point of stagnation. In 1 Samuel 13, 22 through 14, 23, Jonathan and uh, his uh, father Saul... I just want to briefly touch on it. So on that day of battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Now a detachment of Philistines had gone to the pass of Michmash. One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his arm, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree in Migran. With him were 600 men. Among them were Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was the son of Ichabod's brother, Etubah, son of Phineas, and the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. And it goes on to talk. And in verse 6, Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows and pick a fight. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Eventually, he picks a battle, uh, and then panic, in verse 15, panic struck in the whole army, those in the camp and field, and those in the outposts and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. To me, as I reflect on the two responses of Saul, the king, he had all the power and the wealth and the authority, and yet he chose to sit under a pomegranate tree and wait for the Lord's word to act. What am I supposed to do? I could just see him stewing and worrying there. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Whereas his son Jonathan's response, um, I think that'd be interesting to be on a t-shirt, wouldn't you? I see a lot of these, you know, you know, um, the Lord is my strength, or I, I don't know, there's always these good Christian t-shirts, but I've never seen one that says, perhaps the Lord will act on my behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. It seems to me, in my experience in life, that I move slower when I have the most to lose. That the blessings that the Lord has given me in life become the anchors that hold me back from following God without reservation. That's a whole other sermon and a lot more time to spend on that. So which choice are you? Do you associate with Saul or associate with Jonathan? In this fear-filled world and times we live in, it makes me drawn to the question of what is this abundant life that, John, that Jesus calls us to in John 10.10. 10. And when I start looking at scripture, I'm always curious the different translations. Uh, I encourage you to look at that sometimes. Because sometimes one wording, another phrase, uh, they go together in a different way. In the NIV it says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Like a full belly. You've, you're satisfied. You've eaten. NLT The New Living Translation, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. The message says, a thief is only there to steal and kill and destroy. I came so that they have real and eternal life. More and better life than they ever dreamed of. You like to dream? I can dream a lot. The NRSV New Revised Standard Version, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Have you had an abundant bumper crop before? Just in abundance. So what are the narratives of life that we tell ourselves? Either in the busyness, because sometimes that's when our mind 
likes to get busy and play tricks on us, or it's in the quietness that all of a sudden we've hit pause. And those voices start talking to ourselves. About 10 or 15 years ago, Sheena and I took the opportunity to go to a conference called the Storyline Conference. Um, it got us thinking about the story of our life. The author is Donald Miller, uh, and he wrote a book, and then later some movie producers wanted to do a movie about the book he wrote, which is about his life. And so eventually he said, sure, let's do it. Um, and then when they started asking him about the story, they're like, ah, we'll change that, and we'll change that. And pretty soon he's like, there was nothing about my life. In the, or barely anything about my life in the movie. It had all changed. So then he wrote another book, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, and the subtitle was What I Learned While Editing My Life. Because they fictionalized a bunch of the stuff and he didn't look like anything, he wanted to understand why didn't my current life be a good story for a movie. And so he started uh, um, thinking about what's a, what makes a good story. Um, and so he came up with several things, and I forget them all, but there's a character or a hero in the story. There's some conflict as they're going on a journey, some goal or destination or purpose they're trying to attain. There's usually some sort of um, villain or the conflict happening there. Sometimes there's often a, um, a guide to the story. And they're wanting to push through and overcome this conflict. And by the way, if you ever study story that much... Any movie or TV show will just be ruined. So Sheen and I, I've stopped saying who I think, you know, is, is the person in the movie or whatever. They, oh, that's who did it. You know, that's who, because it just ruins it. <laughs> but Sheen and I, from that, it took us to say, what is going to make a good story? There's times we're tired at the end of the day and we could just sit and watch a movie as a family. Or, I clearly remember one time, Let's go make a fire outside. We live at camp, right? We, we don't make fires every night, by the way. Uh, but we went outside as a family and cooked hot dogs and discussed and talked as a family. What is this like? And it's experiencing God's creation that we take for granted when we live there. So that's often been a line. What would make a better story? As Sheena and I look at options as a family. So as you think about the story of your life, the story you're living right now, what are the false narratives that the evil one, Satan, is trying to lure us into believing? And I see this every week with campers or guest groups when they arrive, especially if they've driven through rush hour traffic of Chicago, at least in my experience. Their faces are all tight and they've just been, you know, white knuckled all the way. But when they get here, they slow down. By the end of the weekend, Sunday or the end of the week, I see they're relaxed. They're having conversations with people. They're sitting enjoying a cup of coffee in the morning as they sit on the patio and, and watch the geese on the lake. They've come into God's presence. As Moses went to Mount Sinai, they come into God's presence and they're changed. I have a passion in my life to bring people into God's presence. And I see that through the camp ministry, the retreat ministry is coming through. It was neat to talk to some folks uh, at the relief sale, Memories of Camp. But leaving, what are, what are cell phones? When we were campers, we didn't have those things. We continue to encourage that. Disconnect while you're at camp. Get off Facebook and be face-to-face -face with each other. There's one story I remember of a camper when asked, what does a week of camp mean to you? And he said, Doc, 51 weeks out of the year, I feel like I'm being pushed underwater. And I can barely hold my last breath. The week at camp is when I pop up out of the water. I suck in a deep breath so that I can go down for another 51 weeks of the year. His family life was not good. 
but he saw the love of Christ being poured out to him as a camper throughout the week that he loved coming to Menno Haven and continues to come. All through his, or he came throughout the time he could as a camper. When we come into the presence of God, we're changed. Jesus Christ, the living God, speaks to our hearts. And we can share our heart with him. One of the false narratives I want to touch on briefly is we are in control. Just take control of your life. Have you ever heard that phrase? Just take control of it. If we do everything just right, it'll be okay. Anyone like jokes? I do. So much I like the dad jokes. I got the dad joke app so that I can always have one in my back pocket. Yeah, all right. I see some dads nodding. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So, knock, knock. Control freak. Now, you say control freak who? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> what does it mean to take control of your life or to be in control? One of the fascinating things, too, I enjoy is watching commercials. Like, what are they trying to say before you actually see the symbol or the logo? So I have a couple for us to look at. Go ahead. I've been called a control freak. I like to think of myself as more of a control enthusiast. Mm. Perfect 177 degrees. And that's why this road warrior rents from National. I can bypass the counter and go straight to my car. And I don't have to talk to any humans unless I want to. And I don't. And National lets me choose any car in the aisle. Control. And so, what's the word? Sexy. Go National. Go like a pro. <laughs> what do you see in that? Well, first of all, I should back up. I forgot to put the disclaimer. I'm not supporting National Car Rental or the next commercial. I'm not getting any payback. Menno Haven doesn't get any <laughs> um, uh, royalties from it, but um, just I'm fascinated by it. To me, what I see is that there's self-centeredness, you know? I don't have to care for others. I mean, he took the coffee and he set it on somebody else's cart. Somebody else can deal with that. It's non-relational. He's like, I don't have to talk to anybody, and I don't want to. I can just go right to my car. And I'll tell you, there are days, there are so many people at camp that I don't want to talk to anybody. <laughs> I go north about eight hours to a little island in Lake Superior to go hiking for a few days to get away from cell phones and people. That's my respite. Uh, and Jesus called us to do that, too. He exemplified that to get away. So a non-relational, it's not living in community with each other that Christ calls us to. And at the end, you know, I'll be all put together in control is the thing. You, you'll be just perfect looking, right? All right, next commercial. <laughs> hey, it's been crazy with school being back, so we are constantly going over our data limit. Oh, well, now all our new plans come with no data overages. Wow, no more overages? So that means... Go on, say it. We'll finally be in control. And we're back. <laughs> Introducing new... Finally be in control. And maybe everybody has unlimited data now. I don't know. We just switched, by the way, to unlimited data. Uh, yeah, whole other story. But um, that false sense that that's going to give us control of our life. And we're back again. So the reality comes sweeping in. We can ignore it, turn away, but it's still happening there. 
whether it's Nike or gray, graying hair commercials, whatever it might be, um, the, the commercials in, in the world is trying to call us to a different life. Um, James Brian Smith, um, I think he worked with Dallas Willard, if I'm not mistaken, uh, wrote an apprenticeship series, three books, uh, A Good and Beautiful God, A Good and Beautiful Life, A Good and Beautiful Community. This is A Good and Beautiful Life. I just want to read a segment in there. Um, he talks about a culture of fear. What's the best way to sell newspapers and magazines and to increase the ratings for evening news? Play on people's fears, but do so under the pretext of responsible journalism. You know how it works. That little freckle on your arm is a ticking time bomb. Story at 10. Or our exclusive report on dr why drinking water, too much water, could send you to the emergency room. We're hooked in an instant. The media plays on our fears to boost the ratings and sales. Scott Bader Sayer says, calls this fear for profit syndrome. Media executives, advertisers, and politicians use fear to motivate and manipulate us. Barry Glasner gets even more explicit. He said, television news programs survive on scares. On local newscasts where producers live by the dictum, if it bleeds, it leads. Drugs, crime, and disaster stories make up most of the news portion of the broadcast. Then Glasner adds, between 1990 and 1998, when the nation's murder rate declined by 20%, the nation's, the number, murder, the number of murder stories on network newscasts increased by 600%. Wow. But we have enough to worry about, even if we never read newspaper or watch the evening news anymore. The definition of worry that he says is, before we examine the source of worry, I want to distinguish between caution and worry. Despite their similarity, worry is not the same as being cautious or careful. We should be concerned about many things, locking doors, managing our money wisely, driving carefully on slippery roads. That is not the same as worry. Worry is what we do after we've planned, after we've prepared, after we've acted properly. When we continue to stew about something, we have crossed into the world of worry. Excuse me, worry is a disproportionate level of concern based on an inappropriate measure of fear. Let me say that again. Worry is a disproportionate level of concern based on an inappropriate measure of fear. Concern, caution, and care are all acceptable and even necessary. But worry is what happens when we go be, be, beyond in this and fear what we can't control. I found that a very interesting definition. When we go beyond, when we stew about things. Now I stand before you not as an expert who has it all figured out, sorry. <laughs> I more struggle with you. I'm, I'm there learning what does it mean to rely on the Lord? What is it to take these false narratives and be reminded of the true narrative that Christ calls us to? And that draws me to the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know about you, but for me it's in red letters, the words of Jesus. And I love reading the Sermon on the Mount, his instruction to us. Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who are you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the fields grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon is, in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the fields, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? 
So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I see that worry tends to harm my relationship with God and can cause physical discomfort and destroy joy. We can do nothing better with worry or without worry. Worry changes nothing. The false narrative is if we worry enough about something, we will prevent bad things from happening. And it's linked. The studies show that it's linked. Too much worry is to heart disease and stomach ulcers. Have you ever heard the phrase worry to death? Something to that. I see that worry keeps me focused on my own limited resources. Whereas when I trust, trust in the Lord, it keeps me, my attention on God's abundance and his abundant resources. When I worry, what happens is that I'm on the throne of my own life. When I live in the kingdom of me, a very self-centered. But when we trust, when God is on the throne of our lives and we live in his kingdom. That's why in verse 33, the solution I see Jesus calling us to is seek first the kingdom of God. What does seeking Christ's kingdom look like? There's trust, there's comfort and intimacy in the Lord. When we place the trust for me, it's intimately linked with my time with Abba, my heavenly father. How is my prayer time? How is, am I diving into scripture? Am I worshiping? Whether that's a Christian radio station while I'm driving down the road or if it's coming to Sunday morning worship. Another thing about trust is that I believe that God is sovereign. That was a phrase I often use through COVID. God's sovereign. I don't, I don't know what's going on. I'm just here on earth, but I know God's sovereign, and he's going to get us through this. We had some dear friends several years ago who had an accident with their child, and the way they leaned into God through it all and recognized his sovereignty was a testimony to their faith in Jesus. And that spoke to me. The songs we sing this morning, they have a strong impact on me. They take scriptures or prayers that others have, and they ingrain them in our hearts and mind. Uh, I love my daughter Lydia, but lately she's having some band songs in her head, and the tunes just kind of get stuck in my head. But what happens when a song that we heard this morning, like Sunday morning worship song, oh, that's stuck in my head. All day long, I'm singing about the goodness of God. I'm reminded when I'm stuck in traffic or I'm in line waiting for something, oh, the goodness of God. That song is cycling through my head and speaking to me all day long. One of my favorite songs is, is the um, hymn, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground. Is sinking sand. And the other verses, I'm not going to sing them all because of time, but they're beautiful. They speak to me when they're shaking and happening in my life, in the world. I know on Christ, the solid rock, no other, I will stand firm. About five years ago, there was a Christian band called 10th, or there is a Christian band called 10th Avenue North, and they came, they wrote a song called Control, giving up their control. Um, I think I had that. 
Here I am, all my intentions, all my obsessions, I want to lay them all down. In your hands, only your love is vital. Though I'm not entitled, still you call me your child. God, you don't need me, but somehow you want me. Oh, how you love me. Somehow that frees me to take my hands off of my life and the way it should go. Oh, God, you don't need me, but somehow you want me. Oh, you love me. Somehow that frees me to open my hands and give you control. I give you control. Sometime YouTube it or listen to that. The author of the song said, God doesn't need us to be successful as a band, but he wanted them to be surrendered. How are we surrendering this day? The scripture that was read, Matthew 10, 29-31, about the sparrows, I kind of get a little nerdy that way, like, God knows all the sparrows, how many in the world might there be? And some farmers are thinking a few less would be nice. When I researched it, there's an estimated 540 million house sparrows, just house sparrows, in the world. <laughs> but it's declining, so that's a good news, farmers. Um, the other is the hairs on your head. God knows the number of hairs on our head. So, again, how many hairs on our head are there, maybe? There are 7.97 billion people on this planet as of last night. According to the Worldometer. I didn't know there was one, but there is. The sources are the United Nations Population Division, World Health Organization, Food and Agricultural Organization, International Monetary Fund, and World Bank. Kind of all put that number together on that number. So according to Baum Medical, Bauman Medical, you were born with about 100,000 scalp hair follicles to start with. But it varies with natural hair color. Blondes have an average of 150,000 hairs, and redheads have a, about 90,000. Those with black or brown hair have an average of 100,000 to 110,000 hairs. And Bauman Medical should know about hairs because they're in the business of restoring hair. <laughs> so how many quadrillion or whatever the number might be hairs, including the ones that fall out or turn gray, and some of us it's easier for God to count than others. To me what that says is the impact is God wants to know the minute details of our life he wants to know us he wants us to know that we're valued and that we're seen so don't be afraid god knows nothing goes unnoticed by him the scripture verse of psalms 37 3 through 5 was very meaningful for me in my younger days um, i saw this young beautiful godly woman and i was like wow i want to get to know her better and so we got talking, and just to be clear, this is all about Sheena. I'm not talking about some other old girlfriend. So, okay, we're on the same page. Good. Okay. I was like, wow, I want to get to know her. We talked, we thought about dating, and then I brought up this term courting. And then things kind of got slower. <laughs> For me, I didn't want to date around anymore. I wanted to date with the intention of marriage, that God, it, it just, it seemed that it was the call in my life that I didn't want to just date around. And so I said, she's one that I could see marrying. And 22 years later, wow. But I prayed Psalm 37 for two years. <laughs> Lord, why wouldn't you give me the desire of my heart, this beautiful woman? But at that time, I did not see the plan God had laid out for me. Had we been dating or courting, I would not have moved. I would not have accepted a position at Menno Haven as program manager. 
I would not be here today. I would have stuck around to get to know her, but instead it gave us time to talk and communicate back when you had to pay for minutes and calls. <laughs> um, no texting or cell phones at that time. So that was the desire of my heart at that time and the Lord honored it. God, our heavenly father wants us to trust him when we don't know what's going on, when we're not in our own control, but submitting to his sovereign authority. So I just want to encourage you with that to not, you don't know the plans, what God's doing in your life right now. I'm continually reminded of Paul's uh, phrase in Philippians 4, 5 through 7. The Lord's presence, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In this passage, Paul echoes Jesus' words of do not worry. Instead of worry, Paul says, I urge you to pray. We're invited through this passage to turn our cares into prayers. What's on our heart and mind and submit it to the Lord. And when we do that, we put the matter into God's hands. I heard a phrase once, when we work, we work. When we pray, God works. This does not take away our responsibility for dealing with our own concerns. It places the concerns in a larger context of his kingdom. It allows God to use the resources of his kingdom to meet our needs. When we do, we discover a peace and a power in the life without worry. There are five P's in that passage. Well, I took a little freedom with one. The first one is the Lord is near. His presence is here. His presence is always with you. And prayer, share your heart with the living God in the name of Jesus. He will answer. He wants to talk to you. Petition, bring your cares and concerns to him. Present, be present. Don't think about the past. Don't think about the future, but be present. Enjoy that moment. And then the peace, which is unexplainable, a peace of God which transcends all understanding. A couple of years ago, there was a popular Christian song uh, by Jason Gray called Sparrows. And I'd like to play that song and read the words as they go.
the sparrow. If he can hold the world, he can hold this moment. Now to feel no flower escapes his notice. Oh, even the sparrow knows he holds tomorrow. Even the sparrow knows he holds tomorrow. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you. We recognize that it's pointless to worry. We come to you and confess that our desire to be in control, but we recognize it's a false sense. Help us to learn the difference between caution, planning, and prudence, and fear, anxiety, and worry, and stewing. Oh, Lord God, our living God, may we recognize and name your sovereignty in our lives and the world around us. In Jesus' name, we ask that the evil one who whispers in our ears be quieted. May we not believe those false narratives that are being spoken by people around us. May we hear your true voice of the living God, our Abba, our Father. As the Apostle Paul urges us, may we turn our cares into prayers. And Jesus, may we follow your call and your desire on our life in John 10.10 10, to live a life abundantly, that we may have a life and have it to the full. May we have a rich and satisfying life. May we have a real and eternal life, more and better life than we ever dreamed of. Amen. Let it be so in the powerful name of Jesus Christ.